Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on George Grant. George Grant is known to most Canadians as a nationalist and as a critic of technology who has voiced serious doubts about the value of our modern way of life. But behind Grant's critique of modern society lies an experience of Christianity, about which Grant has so far said very little in his writings. I just remember going off to work one morning, and I remember just walking through a gate. I got off my bicycle and walked through a gate, and I believed in God. I just knew that was it. Tonight on Ideas, in the concluding program in this series, we'll look at the influence of Christianity on George Grant's thought, and at the way in which Grant's understanding of Christianity has been shaped by his reading of Plato and Simone Weil, the French thinker whom Grant considers a modern saint. Obviously and always, the great statement for me of all modern statements is Simone Weil's statement that I am ceaselessly torn between the perfection of God and the misery of man, that this always puts the idea of God in question. The Christianity which Grant shares with Simone Weil has also been the source of much of Grant's thinking about justice, a subject which he's always emphasized in his writings. In questions of justice, it seems to me, one asks more than a finite question. One asks, what is it all about? And the greater price one has to pay, the greater one is open to the whole. Grant's criticism of the modern liberal theory of justice was published in 1977 in a book called English-Speaking Justice. Tonight's broadcast begins with an examination of this book. The program is written and presented by David Cayley. English-Speaking Justice is the most recent of George Grant's five books. It was first published in 1977 and recently reissued by Notre Dame Press, the first of Grant's books to be released in an American edition. The book grew out of a lecture series at New Brunswick's Mount Allison University in 1974. Grant was invited to give the lectures through the influence of artist Alex Colville, a former teacher at Mount Allison and a member of the university's executive. Colville and Grant, in fact, were old friends, having met, as Colville recalls, on an academic retreat in the summer of 1963. One of the things I remember about... <laughs> about this discussion that we had at, uh, in this sort of retreat was that George was talking about in his usual sort of way and I said, I sort of interrupted him and I said, George, you know, you're a romantic. And George stopped and he said, no, you, you've hurt my feelings. <laughs> and this, this kind of thing is unusual, I think, in, in ordinary 
sort of academic or intellectual discourse. You know, I, I just cite this as an example that one always feels that with George, one is talking to a person, you know, not a kind of disembodied uh, creature. My sense of him was of, a, of an unusually responsive person who was always what I can only call thinking on his feet, you know, not a person with a lot of necessarily categorized ideas, a person who responds to individuals in a kind of unique way. He was an old friend. I greatly admire his painting. I greatly admire him as a man. And he was at Mount A at this point. He hadn't yet moved to Wolfville. And he asked me to came, come down. And, you know, being by nature a lazy bee, it's that kind of thing that gets me to write something down. What Grant wrote down in English-speaking justice was his first sustained essay in political theory. He took as his subject the contractual or contractarian theory of justice, which grew out of the writings of thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. According to this theory, society is a contract between competing individuals and not the natural state of human beings. Justice comes from the existence of this contract and not from any innate striving for justice. Grant considers it a heartless theory because he believes that justice must ultimately come from love and not simply self-interest. His purpose in writing was to expose the darkness which he believes lies at the center of this theory. He did this first through an examination of American philosopher John Rawls' A Theory of Justice. Rawls' book is probably the most influential statement of the contractual theory in recent years, and Grant believes that it shows how we avoid facing the implications of the theory by sentimentalizing them. I th think it's a very sentimentalized view. After all, Hobbes had said continually to overpass is felicity, continually to be overpassed is misery, to quit the race is to die. You know, I mean, Hobbes had a really tough view of human existence, which Locke took over. Locke often hid it, but he took it over. And I think Rawls had taken over sort of, without believing any of this, the kind of, all this which is so strange in the United States, this very, very tough society abroad very tough. And yet there is in, in sort of the, what I would call the eastern seaboard universities a kind of sentimentalism that it's, human beings are all rather sweet secularized Jews or secularized Protestants. Now, I think that so deeply involves a kind of sentimentalizing of the contract theory, because the contract theory is a top theory, you know. It is that the individual stands alone against the world and society is just the contract which overcomes what would otherwise be the war of each against each. Grant's ultimate purpose in writing English-speaking justice is to show contractualism for what he believes it is, an inadequate theory which cannot support justice. Contractualism, he argues, can provide no better grounds for morality than self-interest. 
But because an essentially Christian morality persists even after belief in Christianity is gone, we often fail to see this inadequacy. You know, there are a lot, a lot of, of people we might call, and these are fine people, sort of liberal secularists, want the continuation of the morality that came out essentially out of Christianity without belief. Well, you can't have it, can you? I mean, you know, this phrase of Nietzsche's. People say to me, all men are equal, equal before God, but this God has died. I mean, there's no reason to believe in equality, it doesn't seem to me, unless there is some fundamental grounds for equality. The period in which a Christian morality persists, even though the root of it is gone, George Grant calls the twilight of justice. For an alternative to it, Grant forsakes the modern world altogether and turns back to Plato. Plato is the philosopher who, it seems to me, says very clearly that the intelligence is enlightened by love. If you take so much of the modern way of looking at things, one says that one knows things when one holds them apart from oneself as an object. That, you know, that love really darkens the intellect. That, you know, objectivity requires, you know, if we're going to be objective about, about people, we shouldn't love them. And there's some truth in this in the law, you know, in insofar as that when we're ha having a decision in the law, if, if, you know, judges should disqualify themselves if their children are up and think, do you see what I mean? This is perfectly clear. But for some things, you only know them as you love them. This would be the f my fundamental criticism of the contractual view of justice. That justice is a contract between human beings that they have calculated, you know, is that why should people love justice? And people come to know justice by loving it, don't they? I mean, this is presumably what the saints are. People who have probably early on done some acts of justice and then see in, in the light of these acts of justice have seen more and more about human beings and gone on to higher and higher acts of justice. I mean, I don't like the Western language that holds apart love and justice. It's a bad form of talking. I would say the crucifixion is a supreme act of justice on Christ's part. Not that he was crucified, but that when he is crucified, and when after Gethsemane he submits to crucifixion, it's a supreme act of justice to love his enemies. In Christianity, as in Platonism, Grant argues, love and justice are ultimately one. And so long as society derived its morality from these sources, the dark implications of the contractual theory were hidden. Grant draws particular attention to the way in which Protestantism helped to sustain an essentially platonic or absolute morality within liberalism. Well, Protestantism, when it was believed as Protestantism, gave a kind of moral bite. One has to remember in Canada that people like Mr. Woodsworth, 
these founders of, uh, of the CCF and the NDP were Protestants, Methodist Protestants. Now it gave a kind of moral bite and moral limitation to contractualism, didn't it? Protestantism certainly wasn't saying that that society was the bare contract. It certainly wasn't saying what Kant said. You know, Kant said you could have a perfect society made up of clever devils because if they just were clever enough to make the contract, you would have the society. Now, Protestantism didn't really believe that. It provided a kind of moral basis to the purely contractual capitalist society. Now, of the three great Western forms of biblical religion, the Protestants were the first secularized, the Jews the second, and now indeed to a very great extent the Catholics are being secularized. And gradually it killed them. Sort of mainline Protestantism has got shallower and shallower and shallower in Canada, hasn't it? Catholicism has greater strength. Judaism has the strength of being not only a religion, but a race, and therefore it has this continuity that doesn't allow contractualism within its own borders, though outside is a different matter. Now, as these weakened, the purely contractual society arises, and I don't think human beings will take it, will they? My wife had led me to see that the abortion issue was very fundamental. And she had led me into the right to life and to think about the abortion issue. And a certain kind of contractarianism, individualistic contractarianism, had been expressed in the decision of the American Supreme Court by Mr. Justice Blackman, in which he says that the states have no right to pass legislation about abortion. In English-speaking justice, George Grant argued that this decision of the American Supreme Court finally displayed the darkness at the heart of the contractarian theory. He took a strong stand against choice on abortion, and according to Louis Greenspan, then a colleague in the Department of Religion at McMaster, he made this the new focus of his political activity. In public life, he became very concentrated on the abortion issue uh, in the 70s, and he uh, became more personally involved in that, uh, even more fundamentally than he had been in the various political issues of the 60s in the past. In the 60s, he would lend his name to things, or he would uh, give speeches on behalf of things. But in terms of a systematic joining of a particular political or social movement, 
he has been more consistently a part of the anti-abortion or the right to life movement. So this has been, uh, uh, I think, the change in the 70s, and I'm sure he's still highly involved in it. And he also sees in the abortion issue one of the really fundamental points where uh, some contradiction, we're back to the word contradiction within liberalism, is exhibited. So the, the abortion issue has an importance in his thinking, his activity, and his writing, which is very, uh, very great. I think that's been the chief change in the 70s. The decision was that every individual has the control of their own body, and that people aren't individuals till they come out of the womb. Therefore, you can kill the fetus at will. That's really what the decision was. Now, that is such a statement as to what human beings are. Contractualism, one of the powers of contractualism is said, we'll have a pluralist society and nobody need, we don't have to make any statements about the nature and destiny of man. But in that decision, you are making a statement about the being of the fetus. You cannot escape, you're killing it or giving the license to kill it. And in that sense, the being of the world is right before you. And the nature of, um, of contractarian society is in a certain sense exposed. That's what I was trying to say. You've put a good deal of time and effort into this question of abortion, I think, you and Mrs. Grant. Yes. Have you engaged with the feminist view on this? which does, I mean, I think, contain an account of justice. Of course, of course, absolutely. You know, let, let me say completely directly, I think the feminist cause was an excellent thing arising in North America because women had been very badly treated, particularly in a certain periods of modern North American history. I think they're sometimes wrong about the history of the past, the feminist, but that's a minor matter. But I think the feminist cause was largely right. But I cannot see it condoning the mass slaughter of fetuses. Now, I think the whole business of abortion is related to the secular view that human beings are really just lumps of matter not immortal souls. I think this is much more profoundly in the abortion thing in the West than feminism. One can look across a whole continuum of cases in which abortions are done. Yes. And it varies from abortion as a form of birth control to the opposite extremes, right? Cases of rape or whatever. Right. Now, how do you line up a categorical position against this variety of cases. I hope that there are all kinds of relativity. You know, about the world, one should be relative in the proper sense and absolute too. I would say, for instance, one thing that is clear is that people are crying out for adopted children. I think 
Birthright is, is, a, is a, a great organization, asking human beings to take their child to term and then finding proper adoption and looking after the people who are so pregnant. I think this is the central positive side of this movement. Let me say that it seems to me the woman in question may have terrible nine months, but the child in question is being killed. You know, if we say life is a good, which I certainly do, you know, to have a human life is, is a gift of, you know, a gift, a wonderful thing to have had for all its anguish and horrors and tragedies. Then one is saying that when one aborts, one is depriving a human being of that. Always there have been large sufferings asked of all kinds of people. Now I'm saying that the loss of life, ab initio, is the greatest suffering. Now, this does not mean that I think that I would have not one second in not believing that if a woman was going to die, she shouldn't have an abortion, you know, or really done harm to her that she shouldn't have an abortion. I, I just think those kind of calculations are necessary for every moment of society. Some people are sacrificed to others. One is doing this all the time, isn't one? If one... If, if I give several hours to a student one afternoon, I'm not giving it to other students. We do this all the time in life. We're sacrificing some people to others. But it seems to me an enormous sacrifice. And what I am fundamentally against is abortion as convenience. I think the more prosperous people are who have abortions, the more terrible it appears. Can I, just to get it out of my mind, if for no other reason, tell you that a very great and learned Hindu, you know, once said to me, I was saying that my wife was very busy with something. And he said, the only thing, and I have no idea what, the only thing greater than God is the mother. Now, this is a highly philosophic, intelligent, you know, far more intelligent than I am. I just thought that was so interesting. It tells you something about George Grant's writings from the 60s on have been devoted to a fundamental criticism of modernity. But behind this criticism lies what might be called Grant's positive program. It is present in his writings as little more than a series of hints, a finger pointing at the moon, as is said in Buddhism. But it is there, and according to Bill Christian, a professor of political science at Guelph University and a friend of Grant's, it is what Grant's work is ultimately about. Grant has written about Nietzsche, and he's written about, you know, he's, he's concerned, concerned himself with Heidegger and 
and more latterly has been interested in you know in Celine, the you know the French novelist about whom he's you know wrote a short piece in the Queen's Quarterly and about whom he spoke at at Guelph a couple of years ago when he was was here. And I think this is you know the, these these concerns are part of Grant's uh, you know negative teaching. I mean ne negative they're, they're part of his destructive work. These people have understood Grant argues where the modern world was going. Uh, what its character, what its nature, what its essence was, because Grant believes that it does have a, you know, an essence which can be, you know, understood and and then explained. So that Grant, you know, Grant admires Nietzsche and Heidegger and Celine, not in the same way that he admires Mozart or Tolstoy or Shakespeare, because or Plato, because I mean the la the latter ones say what the, you know the truth that Grant believes. Is it always and eternally true about how how human beings should be and what the nature of of, of good is? Celine and and Heidegger and Nietzsche tell profoundly a truth which is transitory, namely the truth about the modern world, a truth unlike the truth that that you know the, of, of of Shakespeare and and Plato, the truth which could never be other than it is for Grant. The first of Grant's great teachers of what is timelessly true was Plato. Grant had been converted to Christianity during the Second War, but afterwards he felt that he had no way of relating this experience to the rest of his life. He found the way by reading Plato. It taught me how it was possible to think rationally about God and about, about justice and, you know, about about the things that concern us here below. You know, one thinks about politics, one thinks of economics, one thinks about the institutions of education one's children are in and one's in oneself. Now, one can't believe in God with one, you know, up one side of my mind. This is to do with the hereafter, whatever you talk about. While you think about the world in the kind of pragmatic liberalism that is everywhere. Do you see what I mean? Now, what Plato enabled me to do, it sort of brought unity into that in a way that uh, you take, I mean, it's gone on for centuries in Canada, people coming from agricultural Canada where they had gone to church, you know, and believed in God and coming in and meeting professors who make the criticisms of the Enlightenment against it and they're all thrown into confusion because they can't meet or understand any of this. I was away as a young chap, you know, I wanted some way that I could think about God. It was just necessary to me. You know, otherwise you're just left in a totally divided state. Reading Plato raised for Grant the question of the relationship between reason and faith. He addressed the question in an early essay, which he now feels did not give philosophy its due. In the West, and this is true not only in the West, because it's true equally of Judaism and Islam. The great question is the relation of philosophy to revelation. And it's been put in the West, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And I was rather in a mood of saying that, when I wrote that essay, of exalting the language of Jerusalem at the expense of the language of Athens. And I think that is always rather like Jerry Falwell. 
and, and, and that is always a mistake. Later, some of Grant's more theologically-minded critics would argue that he had strayed too far in the direction of Athens. But Grant believes that revelation cannot be understood without philosophy. It has been my, my life to think about what is the best way to think the truth of the Gospels. Do you see, that, that's what, you know, in a word, that sounds very pretentious and very... I'm getting more and more pretentious as we go along. And it, it, uh, but, you know, my, what I have been most deeply concerned with in life is, is how one thinks the truth of the Gospels. You have to remember that in, in any of the languages of the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, there's no word for nature, there's no word for history, there's no word for all these words that are pretty essential to think about the world. These are all words that come from Greece. I mean, obviously, going to the cross is not an act of philosophy quite, is it? Do you see what I mean? There doesn't seem to me much philosophy in the Gospels. Grant has often said that, you know, without Plato, he wouldn't have had any idea what much of Christianity meant, that Plato simply illuminates essential elements of Christian, you know, of Christianity. Bill Christian. The soul has to be led toward the good. The Socratic dialogues, for instance, you know, the early ones that frustrate people are, are, the, are the ones called aporetic, coming from the Greek word aporia, meaning perplexity or confusion. And the dialogue, like the law case, what, what is courage? Talk, talk with some generals about courage. At the end, you find, hey, we don't know what courage is. Talk with Euthyphro about piety. We don't know what piety is at the end of it. And some people have said, well, this saw Socrates. I mean, he's always asking questions, but he doesn't know any of the answers. I think the, uh, the Platonic position was that you had to create a poria. You had to create this perplexity, this doubt, before you could take somebody. Euthyphro was sure that he knew what... Uh, what piety was. Lachace was sure that he knew what, what justice was. He had to persuade them that they didn't know before they would then you know, begin to ask the question, well, you know, I thought I knew what it was, now I know I don't. Now I know I have to try to find out what it is. And I think that's what Grant is doing in the, you know, as a tax on technology and his tax on the, you know, on, the, on the Canadian power structure. Those of us who are, you know, who are relatively you know, casually accepted these kinds of things, Grant then says, you know, these things aren't anywhere near as good as you think they are. And you know, it, it pain, it's a painful realization, but then you say, well, yes, you're quite possibly right about that. Indeed, I think you are. You've, you've persuaded me about the unattractiveness of the modern scientific project, but, you know, what's the alternative? And then, you know, that's the slow process of, you know, of rebuilding. So the negative part of his teaching is an essential part of his, you know, of, his, of, of the rhetorical strategy. The, the positive part you know, can only be introduced after people have begun to doubt the uh, appropriateness of, you know, the overwhelming consensus of modern men and women about what, what the future should be like. what Crashaw said about St. Teresa, for all the eagle in her, all the dove. You know, I mean, Simon Weil is the eagle and the dove, you know, this, this wonderful 
formidable power of intellect. With this life of giving herself away to the afflicted of the world, George Grant came across Simone Weil, he prefers the pronunciation Simone Weil, in the 1950s, when the CBC sent him a book of her posthumous writings for review. Since then, she has become his greatest teacher, the person, as he has said, who taught him to hold Christ and Plato together. But for Grant, Simone Weil is also something more than just a great thinker. I have no doubt at all that she is in the traditional categories of the West, a great saint. And many very splendid thinkers aren't remarkably saintly people, you know, in one way or another, you know. But with Simon Weil, you come, you have to combine this staggeringly clear intellect with something that is quite beyond the intellect, namely sanctity. And I mean by a saint, a being who gives themselves away. Now, in, when you talk about giving themselves away, there's sort of a low order of giving oneself away, where, you know, people who are absolutely occupied by a particular vice have in a way given themselves away. But I mean giving themselves away in love. Simon Weil, to me, is the supreme teacher of the relation of love and intelligence. And in, in that sense, you know, one comes upon somebody one must be very hesitant about because here one lives a fairly ordinary, you know, doing one's best, making mistakes, full of vices, etc., etc., etc. And here is somebody who... The saints are those who in some absolutely majestic way, pass beyond it. When one faces a being like Francis of Assisi, one just passes right outside the great interest in the history of philosophy and things like that. Do you see what I mean? Because you're faced with a being... I mean, St. Francis, and I take this as a fact, received the stigmata. He received on his body the wounds of Christ because of his love of, of the afflicted and, and the poor. Now, I, I feel with Simon Weil, I'm talking of a being like that. Because George Grant believes that Simone Weil is a great saint as well as a great thinker, he trusts her completely. On theological questions, she is his highest authority. There is also substantial agreement between their political views. Larry Schmidt teaches at the University of Toronto and has written about both Grant and Vey. The Simone Vey begins with a very strong left-wing critique, Marxist critique and of society, and she identifies with the proletarian class and she identifies with the miners of Saint-Étienne and she goes and works... Uh, with them to try to educate them, is involved in adult education in a way that Grant himself was. And, and uh, so that Grant's career as someone who came from the establishment and then really identified himself as a real Democrat with the people and with the oppressed, 
within his own society, I think shows similarities to the, to the same pattern in her life. But the pattern continues in that, that she, she then does a critique of Marxism in about 1934 or so that was considered by Camus to be the, the most substantial critique of Marxism in the 20th century. And Grant, of course, goes through his sort of socialist phase and around 1960-61 begins to critique that phase and moves, therefore, into a, a conservative phase or the rather than being red, he becomes the Tory, so to speak, and, and ultimately is completely estranged from his, I think, socialist, not, not from his socialist ideas, but from his socialist involvements. Similarly, Simone Weil goes through this period where she, by 1938, is no longer really preoccupied with the social questions, but is preoccupied with the religious or theological questions and ultimately never repudiates her concern for the, for the poor because that, that, that is at the heart of the gospel for her. But nonetheless uh, has little sympathy for the, the movements within France of the time that are attempting to rectify the injustices of, of the period. And Grant ultimately has little sympathy for sort of all the left-wing movements of today not because he, he doesn't sympathize with their motivation, but can't accept their analysis uh, because he feels they have a superficial uh, analysis of technology, ultimately, I think. And I think that, so that there are similarities between their careers. But ultimately, I think it's, it's that Grant is truly convinced uh, uh, that, that she has this experience of Christ and that therefore she can speak as an authority on theological matters because in his view, uh, one can't speak with authority on theological matters unless one's a saint. That is, you can speculate theologically all you want, but only the person who has combined love of God with theological speculation can be said to be speaking the truth. I mean, it is a staggering event which one hardly dares talk about. But she says, Christ came down to her as immediately as you and I are sitting here. And I believe this happened. You see. I, just, I just think it happened. I mean, I think these kind of things happen very occasionally and are very strange, and what are we to say about them? The fact that Grant trusts this experience means, as Larry Schmidt has already said, that he can trust Simone Weil as a teacher of Christianity. What he has learned from her is a way of understanding Christianity which avoids the trap into which Grant believes the Western Christian tradition has fallen. This trap is above all the belief that history can be understood as progress. Grant finds its origins in the Bible. This idea of God sort of having purpose in the Jewish people or a purpose realized in history in Christ is essentially a biblical idea. But then, like nearly all the Western world, we are now secularized Christians or secularized Jews. Do you remember? This is just a joke, but I think it's a very good joke. A, a Spanish person saying to Bertrand Russell, 
you're a Protestant atheist and I'm a Catholic atheist and we have nothing in common. You know, and there, there's, there is a lot of truth to this, do you know what I mean? And uh, what I'm saying about um, is that the modern West seems to me fundamentally taking this from and secularizing it. That is sort of eliminating God from it and applying these categories to the world. The category which is applied with most destructive effect, according to both Vey and Grant, is providence. Larry Schmidt. The original doctrine of providence, as, as it's worked out, uh, for example, in, in the thought of Augustine, would not identify the city of God and the city of man and would maintain a distance, maintain the distance between time and eternity. And so while time is understood in a, in a, a linear way, it's not asserted that, for example, one human generation let's say, that, that lives in the 19th century, is closer to God than a generation that lived in the 12th century because they're equally distant from eternity because there's an infinite qualitative difference between time and eternity. But within the Western tradition, you have this, this transformation of the doctrine of providence, and I suppose one could call it a secularization of the doctrine of providence, whereby it becomes the doctrine of progress and time is understood as the working out of a, of a plan or a, a, the working out of God's will in such a way that at each point we become closer to God. The problem with, for Grant with that is, is this, that it leads to a certain triumphalism. That is, the worldwide expansion of Christianity, for example, in the 19th century when when Hegel was writing and the tremendous missionary movements were perceived to be, of course, the will of God that would lead to the triumph of Christianity, which was all part of progress, which would lead to a universal and homogeneous state. And, and all of that, Grant feels, is, is garbage. It just, you just can't accept it because it leads you to, to rationalize and legitimate all sorts of horrible, horrible human abuses or political abuses. I mean, you can, you can justify the wiping out of native populations on the basis of, of progress. And so Simone Weil, I think, has the role of uh, allowing Grant to rethink a conception of Christianity that is not triumphalist, not progressivist. And that, that I think, is very important for Grant. Simon Weil said this fantastic thing, providence, or as I prefer to call it, chance. Wow, you know that. Uh, there she is, you know, saying it. Saying that one mustn't take providence again as something that is scrutable. You know, one of the things that one is, um, is always annoyed by in Christian believers, particularly certain forms of people I respect for other reasons, but when they say this is a particular providence, how in hell, well, you know, if he's doing it there, why isn't he doing it, you know, in Iran or Abyssinia or something, you, you see what I mean? It's all so, I think the idea that providence is scrutable is a terrible idea. I mean, it's a blasphemy. You know, it makes it, it is a cause of unbelief. For Simone Weil, 
God cannot possibly have purposes or preferences and still be God. God as perfection or the good is untouched by history. There is an absolute distinction between time and eternity, or put another way, between necessity and the good. This she takes from a famous quotation of Plato in the Republic, that there is an infinite distance which separates the order of necessity from the order of good. And this is, from this quotation, so much of her thought comes. Now, one means by necessity, necessity is like gravity, as she says. You know, it, it, it's something that we are all part of. We're all going to die. We all, uh, and if like myself, if you eat too much, you get fat, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this order of necessity exists also in human things, you know, of uh, where we think, where we now think our freedom is greater, you know, in politics. There are certain necessities in politics. It's one of the things that a lot of people thinking about politics think there aren't, but there are necessities. People are moved by class interests. People are moved by sexual interests, etc., etc. I mean, if, if uh, there is just necessity about this in in all realms. Now, the order of the good in the human world is when human beings are moved by their love of perfection. You know, Simon Weil says, and this is really her argument, if you want to use this word, you know how there have been in the tradition arguments for the being of God, that God is. Well, her argument is always the argument from perfection, or what, as it has been called in the tradition, the ontological argument. Namely, that, that human beings cannot get better by their own efforts. They can only get better insofar as there is, as they have partaken in an idea of perfection. And that is just to her an argument for God's being. And as in Plato, the word good in its completeness would be for her an identical word with God, would it not? It just means the same thing. You know, she says, um, she says this extreme statement about love, which is an extreme statement, but there is something t to it. A village idiot who loves the good knows more than Aristotle. What Simone Weil finally enables Grant to do is to reinvent the Christian tradition without the notion of a personal providence. She teaches obedience to fate, not mastery of it. And she teaches that if we submit to the world which happens to us as necessity and chance, we will find it beautiful. For Grant, this allows us to begin to think of Christianity again in a new way. I have no doubt at all that Western Christianity made some great errors in its origins. And I hear, and I say this with great hesitation, because he is a genius, blame St. Augustine. I think it was Augustinian Christianity which came in to shape both 
Catholicism and later Protestantism that led to this Christianity, which in turn led to this extreme secularized form of itself as progress. And, I, I, you know, I have no doubt that Christianity is true, and I think it has to be reformulated out of this. I think Western Christianity is, in a sense, through, do you see, in its form and these forms. And I think it has to be reformulated, getting rid of, of this Western interpretation of it, which led to these strange modern phenomena. I think this kind of Procrustean, triumphalist Christianity, which Western Christianity turned to and led Western civilization to go out, out into the world thinking it could do anything to other civilizations, and which was even more terrible when it went out, went out to do anything it chose to other civilizations when it become secularized Christianity, I think it may be a wonderful, wonderful thing for Christianity to purge itself of this triumphalist Christianity. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to me to threaten Christianity itself, you know, or, or threaten Christ. I mean, how can you? I mean, it's like saying you could threaten Gautama. Do you know what I mean? Ha, ha, ha. Do you know what I mean? I mean, how can you threaten? When something has been, it has been, and there it is in all its radiant beauty. So, uh, uh, you know, they, you, you can threaten things along the way, you know, but not, not the thing itself, can you? Not possibly. Uh, I thought one of the funniest things I ever heard was, do you remember dear old General MacArthur out in the out in the east? He said, "The communists are going to destroy God." Now you know they're not. They're not. Do you know what I mean? I mean they may do many things, but they're not going to do that. Do you know what I mean? I I, I just think that you know talking this way as if as if what is supremely beautiful. I mean, this is what belief in God means, isn't it? There are long eras of horror and terribleness where what is supremely beautiful may disappear, but it cannot disappear from man. That's all. I think that is just true. I think that's what faith is, isn't it, in a certain sense. There is a phrase of Simon Viles that faith is the experience that the intelligence is enlightened by love. I'm trying to think what this means because it is clear that modern science or what I would call modern technological science has not believed that the intelligence is directly illuminated by love. That's what all my thoughts are turned on now. I've, you know, ha having learned a great deal from Strauss and Heidegger and people like that, I am now 
almost entirely thinking about what Simon Weil thinks about. I hate to say thinking positively, you know, because all those BSers in the United States, too, I mean, if you want to put it that way, or, you know, the asses talk about thinking positively. But I want to think less about what is wrong with the modern and more about the truth of what is not present in the modern. On Ideas Tonight, you've been listening to the third and final program in an intellectual biography of Canadian philosopher George Grant. These three programs on the ideas of George Grant were written and presented by David Cayley, with production by Damiano Pietropaolo. George Grant was recorded at his home in Halifax by Rod Snedden. Archival research by Ken Pewley, technical operations Lorne Tulk, production assistants Alison Moss and Gail Brownell. The three programs in this series will be available as printed transcripts for $5 for all three. You can get them by sending your request to George Grant, care of CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Don't forget your money order or personal check for $5, and please be prepared to wait about six weeks for delivery. There's also a reading list to accompany this series, and you can get that for free, as usual, by writing to Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>